0: Our Father, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven,
1: hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will
0: be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation
1: but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.
0: Amen. We pray that prayer from our hearts. We know it's not the only prayer that we can pray. But there are principles in that prayer that teach us how to pray intelligently. We thank you that you are indeed our father. And you're a good father. Uh, Many of us in here are fathers and grandfathers. And every one of us is flawed. Every one of us as fathers looks back on our fathering with our kids. And we wish that we could go back and change some things. But that is not the case with you. Because you are perfect. You have never made a mistake with any of us. You've never made an error with any of us. You have never been too hard on any of us. And you've never been too easy as we are at times with our kids when they need something other than that. Your parenting is perfect. We have times when we think that you have not been fair with us. We are wrong. It's our perspective that's skewed. Sometimes we have expectations that things are going to be a certain way, and when they're not, we get angry with you. But that's not unlike our kids when they were little. We've seen that same behavior in them. We don't want to be perpetual spiritual children. We want to grow into mature men. You gave us life. You gave us spiritual life. You called us to know Christ. And the whole purpose of that life is not only to save us, but to mature us and to grow us up. You were very, very concerned about our growth. You are very concerned about our progressing into greater maturity. And, and sometimes, Lord, if the truth were known, we're not all that concerned with that because we enjoy being comfortable and we like things the way they are and we have certain things that we would like to continue to have in our lives because they make us comfortable. But because you're God and because you're a good father, you often interrupt our comfort and you move us to the next level of maturity, which always involves a process of pain. It always involves a process of some kind of affliction. It always involves some kind of trouble. There are times when we get tired of the battle and we get tired of the process. But you keep moving us on to maturity. I pray tonight that as we come to study your word, that you'll give us right hearts and that you'll give us right attitudes. If there is a bitterness, if there is an anger in our hearts, I pray that you'll convict us. And I pray that we would be men enough to look at our own hearts and to examine ourselves and to see if if there is something wrong inside of us. So many times we think, You have not done what you should have done. But in actuality, that's not the case. We're the ones who are in error. So open our eyes. We all have blind spots. Help us to see what you're trying to do and accomplish in our lives. And enable us to submit to you. And to trust you. You have our best in mind. We think we know what's best. We don't have a clue. We are clueless. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what you have prepared for those who love you. You have our best in mind. Lord, you have things in mind for us that we can't even imagine. Now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. And that one is you. We put our trust in you. We put our hope in you. We ask you to instruct us tonight. Get us straight. Calibrate us with your truth. Where we need fixin', fixes. That would be our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to John chapter 14, if you would, please. We are looking at... Um, This particular chapter, not not the whole book of John, not the entire chapter of John, but John chapter 14, and we're going to focus over the next few weeks on verses 1 through Uh, 6. These are verses that I think are particularly poignant to our day and to our times, because God is in the process of building. He's in the process of building you, and He's in the process of building me. You know, uh, when the economy's going well, there's always a competition that's going on, and it's a worldwide competition. Uh, it's, it's the competition that different countries get into to erect the world's tallest skyscraper. Now, when there's a recession, that's not a real popular competition. Uh, in fact, a few weeks ago, the latest, greatest skyscraper, skyscraper opened in all places of Dubai. Now, uh, nobody is inside of it, but it did open, uh, is what I understand. I actually went online, because uh, it, it's fascinating. You, you can read about these uh, skyscrapers, and, uh, but before this one opened in Dubai, the highest skyscraper in the world was in Taiwan. But now this new one in Dubai, uh, it matched the height of the one in Taiwan, plus you could put the Eiffel Tower on top of the one in Taiwan, and then you've got the one in Dubai. Uh, These are amazing structures, They, they, they just keep building them. This one in Dubai is 202 stories high, world's highest swimming pool, world's highest mosque, world's highest debt on a building, is on this building in Dubai. But when you look at these skyscrapers, And you look at them around the world and you get online and you go over the internet and see where they built them in Taiwan and China and all this, it's amazing stuff. To me, what is so amazing is not so much the height of these buildings, but what is amazing to me is the depth of the buildings. This skyscraper in Dubai that they just finished took them five years to construct it. But the first year was spent and putting the foundation together. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're gonna build that high, you better make sure that you're going down to the right depths, because the foundation is absolutely everything. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to the disciples about a construction project that they need to undertake. In fact, all of us are in the process of undertaking this particular construction project. In John 14, the words are familiar. Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, why were their hearts troubled? Well, in John 13, he had just given them some news that they didn't want to hear. It's interesting to me how often in life we get news that we don't want to hear. It's interesting to me how often we make plans, and those plans are, um, those plans are dashed. Those, those plans are pulverized. You think about your life over the next six months. You think about your life over the next year, the next three years, the next five years. And you've got some hopes and you've got some dreams and you've got some aspirations. Sometimes uh, those dreams and hopes and aspirations, and and they may be good. They they may be uh, worthy. They get pulverized. If you played football, at some point in your life, you probably got blindsided. There's nothing like being blindsided, as long as you're watching it, (laughs) and you can watch the instant replay. But when you're blindsided, Kurt Warner got blindsided this last week, just got cold cocked, and they had the close-up, and you can see him, he's on, he's just laid out, and he's just, he's just trying to figure out where he is, and he's trying to figure out what happened. Now, that happens all the time in football. It happens all the time in life. The disciples had just been blindsided in um, John chapter 13. And it was Jesus who blindsided them. Jesus had been with them now for three years. These were just regular guys, just working class guys. Uh, You know, you got some tax collectors, you got some fishermen, you just, you, you got some guys just going about their business, but Jesus called them. And when he called them, it changed their whole lives. And, and and their lives had taken a turn that they could not have ever foreseen. Here they are with the Son of God. They're traveling with him. He's instructing them. He's teaching. They're with him all the time. All the time they're with him. Because what's going to happen is, and they're not understanding this, but he's going to go away, and he's going to leave his work, and he's going to leave his ministry to these guys. What's happened in John 13 is that you see, if you read between the lines, they're loving it so much that he's with them, and they're enjoying so much seeing what he's doing. He, he's, he's teaching. Whenever anyone comes up who has leprosy, he heals them. If someone is blind from birth, he'll heal them. If someone is crippled, he'll raise them up. It's, it's just, it's, it's astonishing. He's only been with them three years, and he now tells them in John 13 that he's going away. They don't want him to go away. This absolutely has blindsided them. It's their plan. Why would would you go away? They don't get it. They don't understand it. Now, as we read the scriptures, we can see in hindsight what the Lord's doing. But they had no clue. Just like we have no clue in our lives. We're just living life. We're just punching in and showing up. And we've got our hopes and dreams and aspirations. And then all of a sudden, you get blindsided. Just like Warner did and you never saw it coming. It might be in a marriage, it might be a a career situation, it might be health, it might, it could be a hundred, it could be a thousand different things. You just get cold cocked. And you're stunned and you're shocked and you're on the ground and you cannot believe, you cannot believe what has happened. And all those hopes and dreams and aspirations, and you thought it was going to be this way, it's not going to be that way. It just isn't. Everybody looks okay. You look around at the guys around you. Most of them have bathed or showered today. Not all of them, most of them. Well, everybody kind of, you know, everyone looks together. Everyone's, you know, fine. Everybody's, you know what, everyone's not fine. There's some guys in here that have been blindsided in recent days and recent weeks. Some guys, that happened a year ago or two years ago. But you see, it happens. Our our hopes, our plans, they're demolished. It's over, it's finished, it's done. It's beyond repair. Jesus says, I'm going away. They don't want him to go away. That was the worst possible news that they could hear. Now, when when you get blindsided, and your hopes and dreams and what you hoped was going to happen isn't obviously going to happen, what happens? Well, something happens inside you. Jesus said to these guys, after giving them this bad news, Jesus said, this is very interesting, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. See, everybody looks calm. It's possible to look calmly outside and be absolutely in turmoil, even as you're sitting here. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, why shouldn't they let their hearts be troubled? they just gotten blindsided they just they just heard some absolutely horrific news when you get blindsided one of the challenges of being blindsided is to simply get back on your feet again and when a guy gets blindsided in a football game sometimes they don't get up on their feet sometimes they're carried off or sometimes it takes several minutes and they pull out the smelling salts and they put two or three guys and the guy can hobble off y- y- you see In life, you got to keep going. And when you get blindsided, you're just, you're absolutely flat on your back. But you got to pick up and you got to keep going, even in the midst of news that you don't want to hear. It's always interesting to me in Ephesians 6, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand the the strategies of the devil. It, It says there, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm. Stand firm. So much of the Christian life is standing firm. But what happens in life is that when we get blindsided, we lose our footing. We get knocked out. And then the name of the game is to get back up and to stand firm. Uh, When you're standing firm, one of the things that you're attempting to do when when life hits you hard and you have these unforeseen uh, crises that come into your life, what you're trying to do is get your feet under you, and there's something else you're trying to do. Because you've been blindsided, you now have all this anxiety and whirl, uh, uh, anxiety and and turmoil in your life, and you have uh, this agitation in your heart, inside of you. Uh, When when these things happen, it's hard to sleep. It's hard to rest. Why? How can you rest when all this is going wrong and your heart is just, it's just frantic. It's just in turmoil. Jesus said, "This is interesting. Think about this." Jesus said. Let not your, your heart be troubled. So, so what he's saying here, well, wait a minute. This has happened to me, and, and, and I didn't want it to happen, but it's here and it's in my life. Okay, so what, 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 what's going on? Well, the idea here is stop letting your heart be troubled. If I'm going to stop letting my heart be troubled and it's troubled, I'm going to have to do something. There's going to have to be a construction process. I'm going to have to build something into my life to get my heart and my anxiety and my worry under control. And that is precisely what John 14 is all about, is that when life falls out, the bottom falls out of your life, and whatever it might be, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, let not your heart be agitated, and then he starts giving me some instruction that has to do with building my foundation deep. Let me show you something in John 14. In John chapter 14, there is a, a little later on in the passage, Jesus offers something that is, that is quite remarkable. If you look at verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you? And then he says the words again. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. As I was coming in tonight, uh, saw a bunch of guys. One of the guys I saw, ran into, we had a conversation weeks and weeks ago, and he told me about an event that happened in his life that absolutely blindsided him. And if you knew what had transpired in his life, you would understand that his whole life, his, uh, he just got hammered. It could not have been any worse. And when I saw him, I thought, ah. And I just heard for him. And we got within talking distance. I said, hey, how you doing? He said, you know, I'm doing surprisingly well. I didn't expect that. I said, really? He said, you know, Steve, I can't explain it, but I have this peace." That's what he said. kind of shocked me. He said, I've got this piece. He, he, he said, this, this will sound kind of strange, but I've got to tell you, I'm almost to the point of being grateful that it occurred, as bad as it is. What?
1: Uh, that kind of shocked me. Now, why did it shock me?
0: It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He has experienced in the midst of of a tragedy beyond belief. He has experienced and is experiencing the peace of God. He said, I I feel set free. See, that's kind of what Jesus did when he was in Capernaum and when he was out there on the mountains. Jesus would touch somebody's life, and you know what would happen? They'd be set free. We talked last week about how it is that the Lord builds into our lives and, and, and how it is that he wants us to grow. This, this construction process, what does it involve? It involves, it involves a lot of thinking. Um, Christianity, we said last week, is a thinking man's game. Christianity is a thinking man's battle. How is it that you can experience peace... Your hopes and dreams have been dashed and, and absolutely polarized. How in the world can that occur? How can this occur where Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you? So in other words, the peace that Jesus gives is different than the peace that Jack Daniels gives. Right? The peace that Jesus gives is different from a, a, a hopeful peace that you you pursue pursue in in pornography or or sexual immorality. There is a peace that he gives that is not like anything in the world. It's a peace which passes understanding. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and and they were dealing with a lot of stuff. This guy had a lot of stuff going on in his life. A lot of major issues, a lot of major decisions coming up. Young guy. He's having trouble sleeping. He's, He's going one, two nights, no sleep. Maybe catches two hours. He's got to go up and go again. He's just not getting any sleep. I said, can I throw something out to you? And he goes, yeah. I said, why don't you try taking Philippians 4. And when you can't sleep and you're kind of frantic, take Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request, whatever it is that's concerning you, be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I, 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 I said, what I would do is just run that through your mind, slowly. Uh, real slow. Be anxious. For nothing. And then think about it. For not, well, I'm anxious about this and this and this. Okay? So, so just say that's what I'm anxious about, Lord. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer, which is what I'm doing in supplication with thanksgiving, I said just work that verse through. And then when you get to the end of the verse, go back and work it through again. Just real slow. uh, working through a second time. I said, it's been my experience. I never get to the third time. Because what it does is, it puts truth into my mind and it calms me down. See, when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, you know what we're all after? We're all after hearts that are not troubled. We're all after hearts that are not anguished. Who wants an anguished heart? Who... Who wants a screwed up life? Who wants to be miserable? Nobody does. What, what Jesus is saying to these guys in John 14 is that there is a construction project that we are a part of that enables us in our heart in the midst of turmoil and difficulty and disappointment that enables us to build. See, if your heart's in turmoil, what you've got to do is you've got to go from a tumultuous heart, to a calm heart. You, you go from a troubled heart to a, to a submitted heart. You go from a frantic heart to a, to a, to a calm heart. You, you go from an anxious heart to a, to a quiet heart. Isn't that what we want? What, what we're talking about there is finding peace in our hearts when everything's going crazy all the way around us. So now Jesus, and and see, that's something when that occurs. See, a man with a calm heart, who lives in troubled times and difficult times, is a man who stands head and shoulders above other men. Now the question is, how do you get that kind of heart? This uh, skyscraper in Dubai. Uh, five years in the making, first year spent on the foundation. Hundreds of millions of yards of concrete. Um, if I've got this right, and I do, because I wrote it down. The foundation of that 202-story building, there are 192 Peers, going into the earth at a depth of 164 feet. See, guys, if you're gonna get a calm heart when your life is troubled, when your heart is troubled, and and again, listen, we got a lot of guys in here, so we got a lot of trouble in here. Jesus said, In the world, you'll have an easy time. I love that verse. I got it on my refrigerator. That verse doesn't exist. Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have trouble. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. I'm always quoting Acts 14.22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many. So you look around your life He you say, I can't believe this stuff. It just keeps coming. Well, you're, you're right in line with the word of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what is the key? What is the key? How, how, how do we calm our hearts? How do we find this peace? How do we experience it? How, how do we keep ourselves from being overwhelmed and absolutely frantic and sick with worry? How do we do it? Well, you've got to build your life on bedrock. You've got to go down deep. You've got to put the piers deep into the ground. You are only as strong as your foundation. So in John 14:1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Stop letting your heart be troubled. Stop being in turmoil. Stop being agitated. How do I do that? Watch this. Believe in God. You say, that's it? That's it. Believe in God. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, The Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown. The Pro Football Hall of Fame is in Canton. Um, The Baseball Hall of Fame, did I say that? Basketball, Basketball Hall of Fame, Springfield Mass. Um, The Steroid Hall of Fame uh, is in uh, Burlingame, California in some lab uh, right off the Bayshore Freeway, but that's another issue we won't get into. God's Hall of Fame, and he has one. God's Hall of Fame is uh, Hebrews, Chapter 11. Uh, What you've got there are some men and women who walk by faith. Now, there are some interesting statements made in here about this life of faith. By the way, that's how we are supposed to walk is by faith. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, now faith, so, so what is faith? Before I read the verse, let me tell you this. Christianity is not blind faith. Christianity is not, man, I hope that stuff's true and, you know, know, okay, yeah, I believe it. Christianity uh, is thinking. Christianity is using your mind. Christianity is a series of propositional truths. Uh, Christianity is a series of uh, propositions that are put out that are either true or they're not true. I I read through the Bible every year and I got my Bible calendar and they had me reading through Genesis. So... A few weeks ago, I'm reading about the Genesis Flood. And it's, it's very interesting in there to me that it talks about that the water went to a certain point over the mountains, and then it stopped there, and it stayed there. And as I calculated it, X amount of cubits, it came to 22 and a half feet. Very specific. Well, let me tell you something. That's either true, or it isn't. That flood either happened, and you read the account, And as I read the account, it's a worldwide flood. Covered all the mountains. And it got to this depth above the mountain peaks and it stopped and it stayed until a certain point when God started receding the water. Now that's either true or it isn't. And by the way, if what you read in Genesis can't be trusted, then how in the heck can you trust anything else in the word of God? If it's wrong in the very first book, how can you trust anything in John? If it's wrong in Genesis 1, how can you trust John 3.16? It's either true or it isn't. But as we said last week, this isn't Buddhism. This isn't some yin-yang. This isn't nothingness out of something into infinity, into nirvana, whatever the heck that means. This is propositional truth. There is a God. There is a Trinity. There is a Father. There is a Son. There is a Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. It either is or it isn't. It's interesting in uh, Hebrews 11, it says this, verse one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, You can read it this way. Faith is the assurance. The word assurance has the idea of substance, uh, the idea of foundational support. Faith is the foundational support of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. Remember Abraham? At a certain point, the Lord took him, uh, told him to take his son Isaac and put him on that altar, take that knife and put it down to his heart and kill him. He took that knife, he went high, and God said, that's it. God was testing his heart. But he was finding out if Abraham was willing to trust him or not, and Abraham was willing to trust him. And the scripture goes on to say that he knew, even if he went ahead and slew his own son, he believed by faith that God was able to raise him up. That's walking by faith. Now, are we in those kinds of crises and those kinds of situations? Not normally, but that was one that he was in. He had to live by faith. Look at verse 6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. This is is a remarkable passage here. Without faith, it's impossible. The Christian life is a life of faith. Every guy in this room, in some area of your life, you're walking by faith. Uh, You know, we all have uh, plans and goals for our lives, and we have different areas of our lives, and we want to see certain things happen. Uh, in, In your life, you will never get your life the way that you want it to be. You just won't you got all your goals, you know, financial, business, family, all that stuff. The way you want life to be, it'll never be. Now, that's not a Joel Osteen moment for you, I know. (laughs) But it's the truth, isn't it? Because you see, in in this world, in this earth, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have difficulty. And you say, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm... I'm gonna ream a faith it, I'm gonna, forget that stuff, that's nonsense. I'm gonna command it, you command nothing, God commands. You submit to the word of God. God is great, you're a punk. And the sooner you know you are, the better off you'll be. You see? But as you walk with the Lord, you find out something, That I have a motto in my life, and my motto is, God's good to dumb guys. If you know you're an idiot, If you know you're a fool, if you look back over your life and you say, I can't believe I did this and this and this, but you did, and then you say, I'll never do that again, and then you do it again, but you come to him with a broken heart, he's real good to guys like that. But if you think you know what you're doing, and you're arrogant, and you're proud, and you got your agenda, you know what? You got a lot of heartache coming, man. You need to bow the knee and bend the knee and bend your heart. So in your life and in my life, every guy in this room, there's an area in your life that as hard as you work, you will never get it the way you want and you will never get it together. And unless God comes through for you, you're finished. You have no hope. So in other words, in that area of your life, you're gonna have to walk by faith. Now watch this. And without faith, it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he, watch this, must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I've always been fascinated by that statement. He who comes to God must believe that he is. Uh, Sunday, Chuck quoted Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Doesn't give you proof, doesn't give you this, doesn't give you a brochure, doesn't give you a Just In the beginning, God. He who comes to God must believe that, what? He is. He is. It's interesting because we live in a culture that is so far gone that in our universities, if you think that he is, you won't get tenure. I was reading uh, some today out of Stephen Charnock's book, The Existence and Attributes of God written back in the 1600s. And as he's writing, he's talking about atheism. And he's he's talking about Psalm 14.1 that says, the fool has said in his heart. And he said said in there today, he says, in all of Europe, you couldn't find 10 atheists. Hey, you, you can find 10 atheists in the cafeteria at one table at a university. That's how far gone we are. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Um, And I do find interesting that Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We we are surrounded by this idea of atheism. Uh, There's a circuit of professional atheists They write books, they are on uh, television, Um, brilliant men who are fools, because they're ignoring the clear evidence. Everything within us tells us that God is there. There are two kinds of revelation. There's general revelation, if you look at uh, Psalm 19, flip over to Psalm 19 with me. See, everybody knows that God exists. Everybody knows that God is there. When I say general revelation, I'm not talking about the Bible. The Bible is the second kind of revelation, which is specific revelation from God. General revelation, there are some people on the earth that don't have a Bible, but everyone has general revelation because everyone can see the heavens. The heavens are telling, now watch this, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. In other words, the heavens are speaking of the glory of God. The heavens are proclaiming, the heavens are, hey guys, the heavens are preaching the glory of God. Every time they send pictures back from the Hubble telescope, what an amazing God. What an amazing God. The heavens are preaching the glory of God, and they're expanding. Hands, is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You look at those stars, it's unbelievable. And we, the, the, the stronger the telescopes get, the more knowledge we get. But watch this, verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, but it's still revelation. You see, the Bible is special revelation. It's the word of God. General revelation is still preaching, but there's no speech and there's no words, but it's telling us that he is there, and we know that he's there. I went back and looked at a clip on YouTube from uh, Ben Stein's uh, movie Expelled. Is that it? Yeah. Where he has the conversation with uh, Dawkins, the great uh, Richard Dawkins, the famous uh, atheist. I had to just go look at it again because at a certain point, it's very interesting because Dawkins sort of gets himself in trouble because, you know, and, and Stein's just real low-key and he's just, you know, just talking to the guy, not a big threat, but he's just talking, he's just asking questions, and, uh, and so Stein says, so you don't believe that the world was started by uh, the God of the, of the Bible? He goes, oh, absolutely not, it's out of the question, just absolutely not. He said, okay, that's fine. He said, but when you look at the universe at all, he said, you've got a great mind. Do you, see any, do you see any evidence of design? He goes, oh, yes, I do, actually. Now, that's where he put his foot in it. Because those guys are not supposed to say there's intelligent design. But he may have been short a cup of coffee that day or something. I don't know. And he went ahead and said, oh, yeah, I see. And he says, yeah, I see design. And Stein said, you see design in the universe? He goes, oh, oh yeah, I do see design. He said, okay, so help me here. If there's no God who was the designer, then what could it possibly be? We see design on the earth. He said, well, it, it had to have come from another civilization. No, that's what he said. I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's also laughable. you know what he's saying? He's saying he believes in extraterrestrial. Somehow they brought seed to the earth, and they were the originaries of Well, then the obvious question is: so there are the, this other civilization, these extra civilizations. Uh, where did they come from? Where did they come from? See, makes no sense. There cannot be a god, but there can be another civilization. It doesn't add up. The fool is said in his heart: there is no god. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is. When I was reading a book this week by Paul Witts on atheism. And Paul Witts, as a young man, was an atheist, but at the age of 35, uh, he found the Lord. Uh, and I meant to bring the book. Witts has done a, uh, uh, a survey of famous atheists throughout history. And one of the things that's so interesting is When you delve into their family background, there's not a one of them that has a good, healthy, loving, affectionate, disciplined relationship with their earthly father. There's not a one. There's not a one. Because you see, something has happened in that relationship, which they have then transferred to the heavenly father. That there's such a need, there's such a pain, there's such a, uh, a scar that they immediately transfer that into the heavenly father. And, and then he goes on and talks about great theists in history, great men who believed in God. And it's interesting, their family relationships, relationships with their fathers, not all perfect, but healthy. Healthy, healthy. Sometimes there are issues, it took them years to work them out, but they worked them out, they worked on it. There was a health. There was an openness. There was a give and take. It was not a dysfunctional family. Dysfunctional families don't deal with reality. Functional families deal with reality. It doesn't mean you don't have junk, but it means you deal with your junk. It's amazing to me. The guys I have known personally, I've known guys that have walked away from faith in Jesus Christ. I've known guys that are campus leaders doing evangelism for Christ, who have nothing to do with Christ, in fact, are actively working to turn people away from Christ. I know more than one of them. What they all have in common is horrific relationships with their fathers. You see, it's, atheism is not an intellectual issue. Atheism is a hard issue and a father issue. When, when our lives get troubled, and when we get hurt, sometimes we question the Father. I was reading an article this week by R.C. Sproul, and a uh, great theologian. And Sproul uh, tells the story of something that happened to him and his wife back in um, you know, several years ago. By the way, before I read that, I've got to just refer to this. We're talking about fathers. By the way, uh, all the way in Scripture, all the way in the New Testament, Jesus talks about the Father. Do you know John 13 to 17? The word Father is used 53 times to describe God. 53 times. And on my way to R.C. Sproul, I can't believe, here's this guy uh, who uh, twice a week would uh, sell his semen to sperm banks over the last 30 years. Uh guy lives in the Midwest somewhere, looks like just an average farmer guy, uh, he, f- he has figured out he has over 400 children. He's worried, he's worried now, that some of those children who don't know that they are, his biological children might meet and marry one another. And what could be the resulting effects of that? Here are two of his daughters that tracked him down through the sperm bank and he took them out for ice cream. When I saw that, I thought, I wonder what these two girls think about God. And my clue is they've got some, my my, my sense is they've got some issues. Does this make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense to me. There, There are times when we struggle with disappointment with God for what God has allowed to happen. Sproul writes this, In 1993, my wife and I were involved in a historic train wreck. The crash of the Sunset Limited into an inlet from Mobile Bay killed more passengers than any other Amtrak accident in history. We survived that eerie accident, but not without ongoing trauma. The wreck left my wife with an ongoing anxiety about being able to sleep on a train at night. The wreck left me with a back injury that took 15 years of treatment and therapy to overcome. Nevertheless, with these scars from the trauma, we both learned a profound lesson about the providence of God. Clearly, God's providence in this case for us was one of gracious benevolence. It also illustrated to us an unforgettable sense of the tender mercies of God, inasmuch as we are convinced that God's providence is an expression of His absolute sovereignty over all things. I would think that a logical conclusion from such a conviction would be the end to all anxiety. In other words, if I believe he's my father, if I believe he's in heaven, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe that he is. There are statements in scripture to us about God, and one of the statements is that God is sovereign in control of all things. His throne is in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Or his throne is in the heavens, and his control rules over all. God controls it all. That's the sovereignty of God. Um, uh, his throne is in the heavens, his sovereignty rules over all. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115, and he does whatever he pleases. He's in charge, he's in control. He's in control. Sproul is saying, you would think that if you believe in the sovereignty of God, a logical conclusion from such a conviction would be the end of all anxiety. But it doesn't work that way, does it? He says, however, that's not always the case. Our Lord himself gave the instruction to be anxious for nothing to his disciples and by extension to the church. His awareness of human frailties expressed in our fears was manifested by his most common greeting to his friends when he would say, fear not. Still, we are creatures who, in spite of our faith, are given to anxiety and at times even to depression. So as we go through life... Are we ever going to get this anxiety and worry stuff nailed? Are you ever going to get to a point in this earth where your heart isn't going to be troubled at times and your heart isn't going to be agitated? No. There are going to be times when you're going to get hit. There are going to be times when you're going to get nailed. Uh, Even if you're mature in Christ, even if you believe in these truths, even if you believe in these these doctrines. So what is it, once again? how How do you find peace in the midst of turmoil and trouble? Well, Jesus says if you're going to construct that deep foundation, guys, we got to put the pilings down deep so that when when the storms come, it doesn't go like this to us or like this, but there's just, it's this. It's this. We talk to ourselves. We speak to ourselves. When, When it says in Hebrews 11, when you come to God, you must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. There are a lot of things we could say that we should believe about God and who he is. I want to give you just two things. I want to make this real practical. For, for those of you that find yourselves troubled and you find yourself in great difficulty and you find yourself with a, with a heart that is not calm, a heart that is not quiet, a heart that is not at peace, you're, you're in turmoil. I, I want to give you two things that you must believe that he is. Just two. I could give you 20. 20. Here's the first one, you must believe that he is your father and that he is different from your earthly father. None of us had fathers who had it all together. Some of us had good fathers, some of us had terrible fathers. Some of you guys were abused, a lot of us in here weren't abused. Some of us had fathers that were there for us and spent time with us and Threw us footballs and coached our baseball teams and all that. Others of us have fathers that abandoned us. None of us had perfect fathers. But let me say this to you. In growing in regard, you see, when you say you must, you must, when you come to him, you must believe that he is. Well, who is he? He's a father. Well, for a lot of guys, that's a problem. This is what's interesting to me about the book, The Shack. And whenever you mention the shack, you cut the room in half. you You got the pros and you got the cons. And the premise of the book is that someone who has been deeply hurt by their earthly father, deeply, deeply hurt by their earthly father, to the point of where they wound up murdering their father and hid it as a teenage boy. And then later, trusted Christ, Yet their daughter was kidnapped and murdered. See, now there are issues with the Heavenly Father. And through a strange series of events, this man, with all these issues with an earthly father and with a Heavenly Father, is invited to a place called the shack where he smells home cooking and he meets a black woman. Just a, a loving, kind black woman. Who tells him to sit down because dinner's just about ready? That black woman is God the Father.
1: Uh, The woman out in the garden,
0: the the Asian woman, is the Holy Spirit. And there's a guy fixing the door in the barn who's a carpenter, and that's Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When I got to that page, I shut that book and I put it down. Now, other people say, well, the good thing about that book is if you've been very wounded, this helps you relate to God the Father. Well, let me tell you something.
1: You don't mess with who God is.
0: You don't change. When God is referred to in masculine pronouns, you don't come along and say, well, he can be female. You were playing with things you have no right to, hey, when you're in the presence of God, you take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. He didn't say to Moses, pull up a chair and have some bacon. Of course, he wouldn't have said bacon, would he come to think of it? (laughs) You understand what I'm saying, guys? But the premise of the book is, this guy was so wounded that God had to change God had to change who he is presented as in Scripture because if he is presented as a father, this guy can't relate to God the Father, and I reject that. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Our great father has been ministering to crushed men and women for thousands and thousands of years. You don't need to rat change who he is
1: you must believe that he is
0: and who is he he's your father I'll give you a second thing that that you should believe about who he is and this one may surprise you Okay. this is out of left field if you're troubled you got a heart that's just agitated you're going through stuff First of all, you believe that he is your father, not like your earthly father. He is your father, he is good, he is perfect, he is just, he is loving, he's merciful, he's holy, he's a great God. Secondly, I would suggest that you believe that he is self-existent. He's what? I suggest you believe that he is self-existent. You say, what in the world does that have to do with a troubled heart? In scripture, you often see an argument from the greater to the less. You see an argument from the greater to the specific. Martin Lloyd-Jones points this out in his uh, book on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew, are you guys still with me? have I lost all of you. In Matthew 6.25. In Matthew 6.25, Jesus said, don't worry about your life. That's really an interesting statement, is it not? He said, don't worry about your life. Well, when I look at my life and what I'm dealing with here, and what I'm dealing with here and dealing with here, I, I said, why shouldn't I worry about my life? And then he gives me specific reasons and specific facts why I shouldn't worry about my life. And you know what he does? He goes to the Father. And then he argues from the greater to the lesser in a series of arguments that, re- that require me to think and use my mind and use my reason. How do I get out of emotional turmoil? I have to think. I have to think biblically. Uh, Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Uh, why not? Well, here's where you have to think. See, all right? If you're worried about Jesus, said, don't worry about your life. Well, why shouldn't I? Well, here's a question. Where did you get your life? Where did it come from? Biblically, we know the answer to that is that God gave you life. Okay? God, did, did, you have nothing to do with the fact that you're alive. It was given to you. It's a gift. God formed you and fashioned you in your mother's womb. So Jesus said, I I, you've got to follow the logic here. Don't worry about your life. Well, Why shouldn't I? Well, where did you get your life? It's not yours in the first place. It was given to you. Who gave you the life? He gave you the life. Flip over if you would to John 5, verse 26. And I'm sure hoping I have this quote, and I do. John 5, 26 says, For as the Father, catch this, For as the Father has life in Himself, so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself. A.W. Pink writes, The Father has life in Himself. Life belongs to His nature. He has received it, from no one. It is an essential attribute of his necessarily existing nature. Hey, let me run something by you. Where did God come from? When was God created? When did God come into existence? There is a doctrine called the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God means the self-existence of God. God has always been. He has always been. And he always will be. So now, follow the reasoning here. Jesus said, don't be worried about your life. Why shouldn't I? Well, where did you get your life? Well, you didn't get it from you. Where'd you get it? You got it from God. And who is? He is the God who is life. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the what? Life. Life comes from God. If he gave you life and you're worried about your life, what might happen? It doesn't make a lot of sense, because he's the giver of life. And biblically, he's also the sustainer of life. He has a work for you to do. You can't die until you do it. Therefore, it's his responsibility to keep you alive and keep you going until you've finished your work and you're taken to heaven. Therefore, don't worry about your life. (sighs) And I need a pill. (laughs) Does that make sense? That's how you fight off anxiety. Let me read one more to you. Um, The the doctrine of God's assayity is also called his independence. See, I wasn't planning on getting into this tonight. Well, we need to get into it. See, when you get into this stuff, you know what happens? You're driving driving your foundation deep, aren't you? This is better than watching Christian television. (laughs) Don't you think? Plant your seed in my ministry. I'm asking God for 10,000 people to give me $1,000. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you pray for God to get uh, 10,000 people to sow into somebody else's ministry? I'd like to see that sometime. Those guys never say that. This is true. Listen to this. Wayne Grudem says, God's independence is defined as follows. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation glorify him and bring him joy. This attribute of God is sometimes called his self-existence or his aseity. Scripture in several places teaches, hey guys, I'm telling you, as you listen to this, it's going to bring down your troubled heart. It's going to calm it down. It's going to quiet your heart. Listen, listen, I know you're tired, but listen, listen to this. Scripture in several places teaches that God does not need any part of creation in order to exist or for any other reason. God is absolutely independent and self-sufficient. Paul proclaims to the men of Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it, this is Acts 17, 24 to 25, this God being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made more man made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself, watch this, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. That's either true or it's not true. That's why Jesus said don't worry about your life because your father who is the giver of life and the creator of life, who contains life, who has always been who never had a beginning, who has always existed. You say, how can that be? You'll never understand it, but it's who he is. He gives to all men life and breath and everything. Everything you have is from him. Everything. Everything. Gruden says, with regard to God's existence, this doctrine also reminds us that only God exists by virtue of his nature and that he was never created and never came into being. He always was. This is seen from the fact that all things that exist were made by him. Revelation 4.11, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Moses tells us that God existed before there was any creation before the mountains were brought forth or you ever had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's either true or it isn't. And I'm going to tell you something. If it's true, that calms my heart. What are you facing? You lost all your retirement money? Huh? I know, guys, I've lost every dime in retirement. That's trouble. Especially when you're 65 years old. That's trouble, because you know what? You'll never get it back. You can't figure out a way to get it back. What's gonna calm your heart? You believe that he is. You believe that he is. You believe that he is. Um, can I finish by telling you a story? Are you gonna say no? Um, 1982 was one of the worst years of my life probably the worst year of my life and the reason I know that it's 1982 is that every time I pull out my American Express card it says on there remember since 1982 and the thing I remember about that I was in the absolute worst shape financially I'd ever been in my life and I got in the mail an American Express gold card saying because of your financial responsibility and I laughed I was just trying to make it Somehow they got me on a list and they sent me this. And so whenever I see that card, 82, I remember that year. It was a horrific year. All my plans and hopes and dreams of ministry, just, they were gone. It's a long story. God, had a, God needed to do some work in my life. And so my goals, and, and you know what? My happiness was gone. And what I wanted to achieve and accomplish, it was over. And God took me through a period of time for about three years where I went through a very, very deep depression. And my heart was troubled. It, 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 um, I, I, thought I, I thought I was pretty mature for my age, and I was extremely immature, because I didn't have my pilings down deep. I had a lot of trouble sleeping at night, because I'd worry. I'd worry myself so sick. And I had left one church, and I thought I was going to another, and then that didn't work out, and I thought I was going to another, and I thought I was going to another. And seven different churches turned me down, and I wound up in this tiny little church and the first Sunday I was there, there were probably 80 people, and I was 31, 32 years old, and the average age in that church was somewhere between 70 and 80. And, it was, and, and I knew I'd never grow the church, and I never did, and then I, I just, it was a hard, it was my wilderness. I was there for three years. It was, a, it was a very hard time for me. And three years later, God opened an opportunity, and we moved, and... It looked like he had put us in a ministry that had unlimited potential and things were going to take off. And I had been there a year, and the whole thing, I won't go into detail, the whole thing caved. It just caved. It couldn't have been any worse. There were were disagreement on some issues, just practical issues about ministry, and um, friction occurred, and we actually, and I was pastoring a church, and we actually had to bring in a mediator to work it out. Um, I was finishing my doctorate at Dallas Seminary, and I was writing my dissertation and got an approval to write about this this new method of ministry that I was involved in and we were all working towards, and it was going to be the new model for, for church planning across America. And a week before I had to declare it and get final approval, the whole thing blew up in my face. I was devastated. I remember sitting on the front porch of my house and just, I mean, you talk about trouble. You talk about being sick. I could not understand why God had allowed all this to happen. I had to go speak at, at, a, at a, I didn't do a lot of speaking back then, but I, I was speaking to a group of men uh, at a marriage conference about spiritual leadership in the home. And at the end of my talk, a guy came up to me and he said, it was about being a spiritual leader. And he said, what have you written on that? Now, no one had ever asked that me a no one had ever asked that of me before in my life. He said, what have you written on this? And I said, nothing. He said, what has been written on this? I said, I don't know of anything. He said, nothing's been written on it? And I said, no. He said, okay. The next guy came up to me. He said, uh, have you written anything on that topic? No. He said, can you recommend a book on it? I said, no. Because this was way back in 87. And men's ministry was nothing. Books weren't written about men's ministry. Publishers wouldn't publish books written to men in the 80s. Ask them. They'll tell you. They wouldn't do it. They'd tell you point blank. Because women buy all the books. If I wrote women's books, I'd be living on Maui. <laughs> <laughs> the guy says, what have you written on this? The next guy come up to me. and he says, hey, have you written anything on this? No. I go, what is this? I didn't count them all, but somewhere between 12 and 14 guys in a row asked me what I'd written on this subject of male leadership. By the way, the topic I was going to write my dissertation on blew up in my face. I had to have a new topic next week. I'm talking to Mary on the way home on the plane, and she said, well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I said, yeah, I think it is. So I come down to Dallas Seminary to talk to Dr. John Reed, because I've got to sell him on this topic, and it's a big deal, and they've got to approve it and I was in a small group with some guys and I said, hey guys, would you pray about this? Because I got to go get a, I didn't tell them what had happened, but I said, I need to get a new topic approved. And they said, yeah, we'll pray. You know, so I came down to meet with Dr. Reed and we we'd go down in Chili's somewhere down uh, there off Knox Henderson or wherever it was and we're talking and he goes, hey, this is a great idea. I like this. Spiritual leadership, da, da, da. You know, how a man leads a fan. He goes, this is good stuff. I said, I got this idea that you know, leading a family is like leading a small patrol through enemy-occupied territory. He said, that's good, Steve. He said, you know what you ought to do? He said, you know what you ought to do? You ought to write on this. You ought to survey. You got to survey like a 1,000 men around the country. You ought to ask them all kinds of questions about their leadership, about their families, about their ethics, about their... I said, gosh, I've never done that. He goes, well, you can do it. You get, you know, there's a, you can actually work with a firm and they'll help you put the questions together and run it through a computer. And I said, you can do that? He goes, yeah, it's done in the academic world. It's fine because Back then, people didn't have computers like we do now, and he said, they'll help you put it together. I said, well, what does something like that cost? He said, oh, you could do it for probably 15, 15, 15,000 bucks. (laughs) I said, well, good, maybe I'll do several of them. (laughs) I thought he was out of his, I mean, I love Dr. Reed. I thought he lost his mind. 15,000 bucks. I, I, I just couldn't, I said, well, that's just, I said, wow, that's just out of the question. He goes, well, maybe, maybe just think about it, kick it around, we got a couple weeks here, we'll give you an extension, but as far as the topic, we're on it, we're good. But see if you can't figure out, so I come back, and the guy's in the small group, we meet the next week, and one of the guys said, hey, how'd that deal go? I said, oh, it went well, and I gave them this idea, and they really liked it, but it doesn't look like it's going to work. Well, why not? Well, because this, you know, and it's just 15,000 bucks, and I, you know, well, afterwards, um, We're walking out, and one of the guys hangs around, and he goes, Hey, Steve, he said, you need to do that thing. I said, Yeah, well, it'd be great, but I'm just not going to be able to do it because of the survey. He goes, No, you need to do it. I said, Well, I'm I'm glad you're excited about it, but, but I don't have the 15 grand. He said, Well, I do. He said, Do you know this guy? I said, I've met him. He said he was George Gallup's assistant before he started his own company. He said, Call him. You call him Tuesday, I'll call him Monday, and I'll work it out. So that's what we did. Oh, by the way, where I was having difficulty in the ministry, and wasn't seeing eye-to-eye with the leadership, we had to bring in an arbiter. Remember me telling you that? You know what we worked out at this little church? We worked out, they said, you preach on Sunday, but don't come into the office during the week. We don't want you in there. Aren't you working on some paper or something? I said, yeah. He said, work on that. So I did. For a year. Oh, and then that finished, and then a publisher heard about it and said, hey, we'd like to turn that into a book. So I mentioned that to them. He said, yeah, yeah, just work on that. Just don't come into the office. That book became a book called Point Map. And to this day, and, and I say this to give God glory. Uh, you know, guys, I cannot tell you, when I was writing that book, how troubled my heart was. Because every week, I didn't know if I was going to survive another week in that ministry. Every week, I was afraid I was going to get fired. My heart was troubled. I, 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 could, I, I had no clue what God was going to do. My heart was troubled, I was worried, I was sick, I had trouble sleeping at night. Ask Mary, she'll tell you. And my prayer was, Lord, just let me finish this book before it comes to an end. I finished the book and three weeks later, I got a call and they said, we want you out of here. I've been in men's ministry full time for over 20 years. You know how it all started? With me writing a book, in a bedroom, because they wouldn't let me come into the church. And that was very troubling. And it was embarrassing. And not, nobody knew about it except for three people in the leadership. But it was what we worked out. I look back on that, and you know what I see now? I see the hand of God. And that was the beginning of what God's done in my life over the last 20 years. So as I'm sitting here tonight, I look over the next 20 years, what's God going to do? I don't know. Have I got some things I'm concerned about, I'm in a little trouble about potentially? Yeah. But you know what? I believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I'm telling you something. He's there. He's there. You can trust him. Can I tell you something else? He's good. Oh, well, and by the way, those guys that I kind of got crossways with, we got it all worked out. We got it all reconciled. And we just laughed at the goodness of God in our lives. A bunch of guys that didn't know what they were doing. But he made a way for us. So where are you?
1: He knows where you are. Don't let your heart be troubled.
0: Believe in God. He'll make a way. And he'll give you the peace which passes all understanding. So we pray our Father in Jesus' name and thank you for your greatness. Encourage All of us tonight, Lord, with your truth. And as we look back, we see what you've already done. We believe you're going to work again in our lives. You've got a plan. You're the giver of life. You sustain our lives. We have to keep living the moment our death has been set by you. And until then, we can't keep ourselves alive, but you give us life and breath and everything at exactly the right moment. We believe that in Jesus' name. Amen.